We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. My name is Jari Boland. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Jeanette Small, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to talk to you. You are the founder and CEO of Lucid Cradle. You are one of the first licensed psilocybin facilitators in the state of Oregon and probably in the entire U.S., I would venture to say, which is just super cool, super, I have so many questions. But as I always like to say, I only have really one question that we'll start off with and then we'll go from there. But yeah, tell us how you got to do what you're doing today. I cannot wait to hear this. Oh my, prepare yourself. I have a long story. Hopefully, it is going to be a fun journey for y'all to follow. So there are a few key things that really brought me to where I am today. There's my propensity for a great preoccupation with my own internal lived experience. I'm just really fond of witnessing my own corporal state of being an embodied being. Another part that contributed to it is a great deal of personal tragedies that necessitated a lot of creative adaptations in my life. So one might see it as an entrepreneurial spirit that has come out of it and that has developed because I have been forced to see my environment in a different way in order to adapt to what I was dealt and make the most out of what I had to deal with. And lastly, because I've been in a lot of different situations and I would love to tell you more about that, I found myself to be othered a lot. I felt myself like a person who doesn't quite fit in any real community, in any real group. So I've always been an outlier in some way. And that has driven me to really, I don't know, try harder, prove myself and also seek a connection and learn about other people and try to see how I can find a relation to social environments that have surrounded me. Wow, that's a lot to unpack. <laughs> But that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you. If you don't mind, why don't, can you tell me a little bit about these personal tragedies that shaped your kind of perspective on things? And I would love to. How, okay. Yeah. Tell us a little bit um, more about that. Let me start before. I was born into a German-Jewish family in the Soviet Union. 
my grandparents were in the camps. And even at the time that I was born, we were always considered to be outsiders. We're always told to go home wherever that would be. Within my family, we had a lot of conflict around the transgenerational trauma, the war. I don't think I have to go into detail about the traumatic experiences that have really haunted an entire several generations, actually, of my people. So I grew up amongst survivors, always being prepared for war, always being othered, always being attacked, having to hide any sense of cultural belonging and spirituality, uh, witnessing people being taken away by the Soviet government for daring to express opinions that were counter to what was accepted. And then the Soviet Union collapsed. And I was a child. I was nine years old at the time. And my entire country, my entire world just fell apart. And I got to experience a real sense of anarchy, which, by the way, is not what it seems like when you listen to a lot of punk songs, which I'm fond of. It's a very glamorized version of the experience. What I've experienced to be quite dominant there is hunger and desperation and just a lot of anxiety. I was born in Moldova. That's the Western neighbor to Ukraine. And Russia did not look fondly upon Moldova's attempts at individuation. We, much like Ukraine, have experienced Russia's, let's say, military response to the country's desire to be on its own and to reconnect with its own cultural roots, which are much more Romanian than Russian. We did not get to enjoy Western support. It was just right after the wall came down, right after the Soviet Union collapsed. So we were on our own. And so here I was, a child in a family that in itself already dealt with so much trauma in a country where we were not welcome, that now was going through a civil war and was being attacked by a much bigger country. And in the middle of all of that, we have completely lost our government, um, all of the institutions, because nothing was privatized at that point. All of the companies belonged to the government that now did not exist. It was very scary. A lot of people did not make it. We had to run. We were planning on going to the United States altogether. Due to circumstances between my parents, it happened to be such that my father ended up going to California and my mom, my younger brother and I, ended up going to Germany. So on top of all of that, now my immediate family was further split. That necess necessitated a lot of adaptations. And quickly. So at 10 years old, I suddenly had to implement some of that knowledge that my grandparents taught me about how to survive the war, whom to trust, whom not to trust. I had to learn a language real quick and try to assimilate really quickly. I needed to help my mom survive and try to put some food on the table and try to just help the family move on in life. It was not an easy experience. And yeah, I've seen a lot of shelters. I've seen a lot of not great situations. And again, I had to find a way to persevere. For me, education has been a really wonderful opportunity. I have had really great luck in that I tend to excel at school. So despite all of those challenges, that has always been the safe haven. School has afforded me the opportunity of having a, a puzzle that I can solve 
here's a set of things that I have to do. If I just get them done really well, that's great. You get a good grade. You get rewarded. People recognize your hard work. But otherwise, outside of school, my life was hard. And at 17 years old, I decided to just see and try to reconnect with my father. So at 17, I came to San Francisco, California with the enduring hope that perhaps this time it is going to be easier. Perhaps this time luck is going to smile upon me. And I arrived and my father was petrified. Now I'm 41 years old now. So looking back, I can say, yeah, of course, the man who hasn't been in my life for the first 17 years would not necessarily immediately excel as a father to this immigrant child with an insane trauma history. But at that moment, that is not what I expected. And that is not what it just was a big surprise to me. He was completely overwhelmed and abandoned me. And I was stuck figuring out my own way. I had to enroll myself in school. I had to go ahead and figure out what I'm going to do with myself, how to earn some money. And I was so fortunate to be in San Francisco, California. Because if you are a 17-year-old immigrant, having the infrastructure and the opportunities that the Bay Area affords are just the most superb opportunity ever. I found out about the School of the Arts, which is a magnet school. They had a huge wait list and I decided, you know what, I have nothing to lose. There is no one who is going to be embarrassed for me more than they already are. I'm already not part of anything. I got nothing to lose. I'm going to go and I'm going to apply. I'm going to do my best. And they accepted me right on the spot. That was great. I was really excited about it. So then I started attending the School of the Arts and I got to meet amazing artists, amazing people who were inspiring and connected in all of these wonderful ways. Through them, I was discovered by the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, who invited me along with some other young artists to do a project for one year. So even though things weren't working out with my dad, there were all of these wonderful things working out with San Francisco. There were all these wonderful things that were coming my way, and I was not going to give that up. So I just kept taking the opportunities that kept coming my way. I did the one-year internship with SFMOMA. I got to show my work. I got to do some performances. And I was ready to go back to Germany. And Germany did not accept my high school diploma. They said that they were not really fond of American secondary education. And they really wanted me to test out of everything. So I said, no, you guys, I've already lost so much time. I'm an immigrant twice over. Come on. Okay. New idea. I'm just going to go to university in the United States and then I'm going to transfer. Okay. So I didn't know what to apply to. Again, I didn't have a ton of advice and I was in the art world. So all the schools that were recommended to me were art schools. And I was afraid of getting an art degree and then starving. So I decided I really do need an academic degree just in case. So I applied to a few UCs, to Stanford and to Yale. And that's it. <laughs> there you go. And Stanford Dream rejected big. me. Uh, their loss, their loss. That's what I'm saying too. And I couldn't afford Yale. And I ended up going to UT Santa Barbara, which was a great choice. It was really wonderful. I came in as a business econ major because I figured this is the best way for myself to utilize the many skills that I am already 
the skills that I already have under my belt. And I figured quite cockily that I can develop new skills. So as long as I know how to utilize the things that I'm able to develop for myself, then that's really the best way to utilize education. But then I really didn't like the major. I fulfilled all of the requirements and I felt like I wasn't really learning the things that I wanted to learn and decided to change the major. So I changed to psychology and took all of the courses that UCSB offered for undergrads in psychology. I way overshot how many units I needed because, again, I figured, listen, this is my chance. I am at an elite university. These are amazing, smart people. The best use of my time is getting all of these classes under my belt. It doesn't even matter if that is exhausting me and now all of my grades are not A's. It doesn't really matter. The most important part is that I'm able to really gather this wisdom that they have accrued here. And after that, I was done with school, had no money, no family support, and I needed to figure out what to do. With an undergraduate degree in psychology, not a whole lot of options are available. No, yeah, there's not a lot. There's not a lot. Yeah. So I went and started working for a psychiatrist. I was grossly overqualified to run his office, to be quite honest. However, he was a psychiatrist who specialized in opioid addictions. And Ah, he was one of the very first to prescribe Suboxone. He was one of the first six doctors who was allowed to prescribe Suboxone. It was a huge big deal. And in exchange... Can can you explain what that is? Well, that's right. Forgive me. I fall back on the fact that jargon is... (laughs) Universal. No, jargon's universal. Jargon is universal. Everyone knows my jargon. Suboxone is a medication that was groundbreaking in treatment of opioid addictions. So in some ways, it acts like anti-abuse does for alcohol dependence in that there, there are a few different ways that you can treat opioid addiction. One is the route through methadone where you substitute the function. You just kind of yeah. lessen it. The boxone, it just makes you feel bad when you use the opioid. It is a different okay. approach and it requires a different clinical holding environment. And so all of the doctors who were allowed to prescribe this medication to begin with had to go through additional trainings. They had to contribute to clinical research in order to see, does this actually work or is this causing other unintended consequences? Right, because I right. was willing to work for this wonderful doctor and help him out with some acculturation issues, I'm going to say, because he was a doctor coming over from Egypt. So... We had a good time connecting over the fact that assimilation can be difficult. Yeah, it's <laughs> interesting. It's, yeah. Like with co-founders, you'd find the people that right. compliment you. Right. It's like I with anything. People to give me access to information that I really value. And I was able to give him access to the cultural information that he desperately needed. And yeah. let's be honest, it was not really safe for him to explore normal, let's say, employment relationships. So I'm going to leave that at that. So I have learned how psychiatry works. I have learned what the pharmaceutical industry looks like more from the inside. And then I felt ready to go to graduate school. Now, I wanted to be a researcher. I really wanted to find out the nature of the human condition. What is it like to be human? What is it like to experience the things that we do? How much of it is individual differences versus that's just human nature? I really want to contribute to that. At the same time, I was looking at all of these graduate programs and finding that 
a lot of the research tracks were really devoid of any clinical information. And I thought, do you guys check your work? You should really be meeting with people in real life outside of the lab as well in order to inform your research questions. Again, I know it's a bias, but I had a strong one about that. And so I kept looking. No, I think it's the same thing as when they say in business, get out of the building, go talk to people. Like you're not Run. just in a vacuum in this little thing, doing your thing. You got to go out and talk to customers, get That's out in the real world and figure out if these hypotheses matter. No, I think it's a, I think it's a universal truth of both from the theoretical to the practical where, you know, where the real world hits the theory mm -hmm. is where the innovation at. Exactly. My, my, my experience. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs, I, you, when they think, yeah, when they think about that, they're, especially if you're a technical entrepreneur, you're sitting there writing your code or your product and you're like, this is what I know, but really the innovation and the insight and the pushing forward of the narrative of the growth happens in the field <laughs> when That's things exactly. are not as perfect as they seem to be. Exactly. When you're only looking at a highly controlled environment, then that is all that informs your decision-making. And that can take you to a certain point, like foundationally, like they can help you set up your system, but then you have to go out and test it. You have to go and talk to the people. And so I didn't see schools that were really offering that. So I kept looking then for clinical programs. And they did not want to do any of that statistics stuff. And they didn't want to do any of that. Which again, I felt, but you are working with the people. Shouldn't you be informed about the research findings? I don't understand the chasm between those two sides of psychology. Because in the common vernacular, I don't think anyone makes a big distinction about that. People think psychologist means you do research, but you also work with people. But then in real life, I did not see that reflected. And so I started looking outside of the established academic system. There was a startup school, and I decided to take a chance on them called Santa Barbara Graduate Institute. They were founded and run by people who all of them were clinicians. Every single person working for that school had seen clients for a substantial amount of time. So they all brought a wealth of wisdom in how to work with people actually. At the same time, what they wanted to do, their dream was to validate the wisdom that we saw in the clinical realm through research. So what they offered were clinical psychology programs with two tracks, the first one being somatic psychology and the second one being pre and perinatal. Somatic psychology appealed to me tremendously because I thought, what a beautiful way to go around the limitations of language, to go around cultural differences in some ways, yeah. um, to really appeal to a much greater audience. And then having come from some clinical experience, having seen the work of psychiatry, when you're working with people who are really not cognitively strong, either temporarily because of their drug use or permanently because of some disability that limits their ability to process information. This seemed like an amazing opportunity to really, truly enrich our understanding of clinical work. I thought, this is it. I'm going to yeah. make a name for myself through research. I'm <laughs> going to join these guys. You should say what semantic means so people understand. 
Oh, I'm sorry. Just, what did you <laughs> just brief briefly? What's the se- semantic? Oh, the semantic. Yeah, what, the yeah, what, yeah, just, jargon. <laughs> no, just so people understand the difference, because a lot of people may do talk therapy as right. a way to go through their clinic. Whereas this is more physical and movement and not That's necessarily right. have to talk about your feelings, right? That's right. So thematic psychology has a major premise. Basically, we say Rene Descartes was wrong. Cartesian dualism is misguided when it comes to therapeutic work. So what we say is that the psyche and the spirit are in fact embodied. They are not separate. So we can't say we are going to access the mind through speech, through language processing alone, and the rest is the extra stuff. Instead, we approach all that extra stuff is really important also. Uh, We consider the cognitive and rational mind as only one of the channels through which we express ourselves and experience ourselves. This rational self is the newest trick that rests on millions of years of development of wisdom that we hold in our cells everywhere. It's not just in the neurons. It's in all of the other cells as well. Our bodies have been able to survive great extinction events, have been able to survive predation. What drives us? What makes our brains actually work? Most of what our brains are doing is trying to keep us alive, trying to keep us alive. Yeah, I think, and for those that are listening, probably the, and I've talked about, I think I've talked about this book before, The Body Keeps the Score by Vessel Vanderkolk. It's probably one of the works on that and I think has been on the bestseller, New York Times bestseller list for the better part of four years or more. So It is a great book. It's a great book. And so that's what we're talking about for those of you that don't know. Right. Thank you for that. Yeah, no, I've just, I think it's important. So not only, I think this is super interesting from a personal journey, how we can be better entrepreneurs, better people. Um, but I think it really does set the stage for your venture, the entrepreneurial side of what you're doing, because it's from what we've just talked about, and you're pretty much trying to find the new and innovative ways to help people. Right. So is one of those ways. And it's just fascinating to me that Oregon has taken the lead. I think Oregon probably one of the first states to do this. Um, we are the to first. Really, yeah, to really, I would say, I wouldn't say smash the modality of the pharmaceutical induced haze that a lot of us are in if we're going through challenges and struggles. Part of, part of even what Dr. Vanderkolt says in his book is about, look, a lot of the things that you can do to help you with anxiety, depression, once you get to the root of it, is in the body's ability to protect you, to your points, doing it for a reason. And if you want to unwind that, it's not just popping a pill. It's right. doing the hard work. And that's correct. So I'm curious. That's right. Thank you. I'm curious, like, how did it come about that you found out, that, oh, wow, I could be one of the first to do this? And because it's something that has happened, basically, psychedelics would have been put on hold ever since the early 60s because people freaked out about all the hippies taking it or whatever. And (laughs) research, it's quote unquote stopped for a long time. And like a lot of entrepreneurial endeavors, just so most people know in, in terms of why this is important for entrepreneurship, sometimes it's not that there's not a demand or a need. It's that the government gets in the way and says, no, 
<laughs> shuts it down. How was that? How did you go about wanting to do, wanting to be one of the very first people registered in, in the state of Oregon to do this great work? I have personal experience with psilocybin, so I'm going to say that. <laughs> I first came into contact with psilocybin at UC Santa Barbara in my undergraduate time. As I mentioned, I was connected with a lot of amazing artists in the Bay Area and then again around Los Angeles. I was just fortunate to come in, into contact with really inspiring people with a legacy of connections of inspiring people. And some of those wonderful people have introduced me to psilocybin in an effort to help me heal some of the trauma that I had shared with them. So my, all of my experiences with psilocybin actually hadn't been entirely recreational per se. They were always intended to be journeys of discovery, always an opportunity to connect to something that I was not able to connect with before. And I had amazing experiences with that. Every single time that I took a journey, it was a different experience. Every time I learned something different, I can't say it is always jolly, it is always sad, it is always profoundly deep or profoundly this or that. Every journey is different. And every single one has helped me heal, repeat, or find a direction in life when I was seeking yeah. something and wasn't sure where to turn. As I've shared, I have a really profound trauma history. And I, people with the type of trauma history that I have are not expected to perform particularly well. And here I am performing better than the average person, performing better yeah. than maybe not just the average person. I do think Probably that the utilization of psilocybin definitely assisted me in that. I do think yeah. that without the psilocybin, I may not have been able to come to this level of functioning to learn how agile I really can be, how resilient I really am, that a lot of my skills and my assets really are transferable and that I can think outside the box to use not outdone expression, but it has been transformational for me. And then more and more people ask me to support them on their journeys. And I have seen the transformation for other people. I have seen how folks who feel completely desperate and there's nothing that can possibly help them out, finally find solutions. And not only that, oftentimes these solutions don't make rational sense. There is no way that through talk therapy, I would have gotten there with the client quite a lot of times because people have these mystical things, these experiences that change something and bring forth some type of wisdom, it doesn't make rational sense, but it doesn't have to. If they're able to integrate it in a way that gives them growth and strength and the ability to pursue their endeavors further, sometimes it's okay to not know why it works and still pursue that knowledge and mindfully allow ourselves to heal while we're learning how this works. So this is why I'm yeah. pursuing it in this Base because I do want to be one of the first come in there and help establish some of those industry standards. I have yeah. seen some mistakes being made. I'm just going yeah. to say we're fond of saying that the government has been the great opposition to us exploring these substances. But from my studies, I want to say that there was also a lot of irresponsible use of these substances. Oh, yeah, for sure. In the 60s and 70s, when people were experimenting in 
legitimate laboratories with LSD and psilocybin, some very inappropriate behavior occurred. And in fact, as a consequence of that, we have regulations about not being allowed to have sexual relations with our client, for example. That comes directly out of the clinical work of that time. So I just want to say that some of it is, in fact, the researcher's fault for not watching some of that really not great behavior. And that yeah. is also part of what motivates me to be one of the first to come out and to do it right, to not cut off this opportunity for exploration of this amazing substance. Yeah, no, it's good. that's a really good point. Back, I think it was the 50s, there was a government pro program called MKUltra. I'm sure you've heard of it. Yep. MK stands for mind control. Back east somewhere, I don't remember, maybe it, was, it escapes me. But the thing to know about the MK Ultra program that was very nefarious, and very not cool, is it created Ted Kaczynski. Mm -hmm. Unabomber yep. was part of that program and it fried in because they were trying to manipulate him. So I can right. appreciate that the unethical, unkind, considerate application of these substances, which are powerful substances that we have to take have a, a tremendous amount of respect for. Not only did the government was reacting to obviously the power of them and not being done in an appropriate way. But I think now what's interesting is that the, uh, there's been a lot of studies. And again, from an entrepreneurial point of view, sometimes people have to catch up with the market. So you're the first market mover. You're first there, which is always a very powerful thing, especially as everything lines up. If you can be first to market, that's a huge advantage. Because again, you get to set the tone. You get to talk about regulation. Look at artificial intelligence. Open AI is the first to market. Now they're starting to clarify, okay, what does that really mean? Same thing. It, and what's interesting is that your power of what you're doing and what you're trying to accomplish is, for those people that don't know the power of psychedelics, especially psilocybin, um, it is not something you have to take every day. So the business model is a little bit different than the pharmaceutical companies that want to get you, let's be honest, habituated towards substances that keep their profits up. And right. there's no surprise. Look at the opioid epidemic was literally because of Purdue Pharma. Like that, no doubt they got fined. They got so nefarious stuff happens, right? I am curious how the business side's going to work because I think there are obviously business models. There's, there's therapy, obviously. I have taken a journey, so I understand the power of it helped me with the trauma of my wife dying as well as my alcohol addiction, which I'm now five years, over five years sober on that, which is great. So there's powerful, it's a powerful thing when used properly and when the business model obviously is sound and what I think is interesting is the, since this is a natural occurring like marijuana, I don't think it's going to go the marijuana route or the cannabis route because the cannabis route's got a whole other different dynamic. You honestly cannot use this every day in the kind of quantities to have a journey. Like it would just, yeah. So I'm just curious, like business model wise, how is the Oregon moving this forward? How are you thinking about how you're going to influence what will be a massive industry? Thank you for asking. 
that's actually not an easy topic to talk about. I've been asked about that a lot by the media. And usually the question is definitely a, a setup for, oh, and therefore you should do it different. So I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you about this as I hear an open ear. No, um, I, you just lay out your vision because to me, I had no idea. I just, to me, I am thrilled to have literally a pioneer in this that can just tell me her vision. So tell me, tell us your vision. This is what being an entrepreneur is all about. Thank you for the floor in that. So this is the situation. There is no precedent, really. We don't have a status quo. We don't have anything that we can really model it after. So everyone has to be creative and figure out how to make this happen. There are a lot of regulations, but there is also a lot of opportunity. So the state has tried to give us choice in how we're going to structure our businesses, how much we want to charge, what we want to do about this. And so I started looking at it from the following perspective. So I would like to go into business on this by myself. I don't really want to make compromises on the clinical side. And I didn't want to take investors because investors need to be paid back. And I was not willing to offer any percentage of my company because then that would come right back into my clinical decision-making process because then I would have to decide with somebody else whether or not to take certain clients, where to draw the line on where I am feeling overwhelmed. So after exploring that dynamic of what I'm willing to give, I've learned I'm not willing to give. I want to do it my way. I've waited. I've paid my dues. I've studied. I've worked. This is the time. Then I am just a one-person company, and I'm funding my company through the life savings of my husband and myself. We're like many entrepreneurs, taking the money that we have accrued, underwriting it with our house, trying to leverage as much as we can. I am very much motivated in creating a business that is sustainable. As much as I want to save the world and help everybody, I cannot do that if I am not able to pay my bills and I have to then stop working and go seek another job. I've been contacted actually by, okay, hundreds of people to tell me that that is unethical, by the way. I've been advised that the more ethical way of providing services of psycho-spiritual holding for people would be as a, like, a second or third job. One person even contacted me to let me know that sex work would be a good option for me. So, oh gosh, right? No, cringe on a level I did not expect. Gosh, the craziness just came out of the woodwork. So I did not do that. I decided that this is not sound business advice, and instead, (laughs) instead, I was going to look at what I perceived to be the actual target audience. So this is where I really started. First, most people will tell me about how many people are generally interested in utilizing mushrooms and how many people have already done journeys. I'm thinking that a lot of the folks who are already very happily utilizing these substances in places like Burning Man are going to continue doing that. Yeah. I think that I am not really in the legal realm, never going to be able to compete with this underground. They will always be able to undercut me by price because they can do without a lot of these regulations. They don't have to pay the insane taxes. The substance remains the Schedule One substance, which means that I cannot write off 
any business expenses, but also it means that a lot of infrastructure that is created for small businesses simply does not apply. I cannot this open- This is the problem. No. This is the problem that marijuana had too. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And marijuana still is facing these problems. Yeah. Just forget about it. They're like, like you guys are banking with legitimate banks, right? No, we're not. No, we're I mean- trucks. <laughs> no, and I think this is the, hopefully what the marijuana or sorry, the cannabis industry will help lead the way on is that 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 particular thing about schedule one and all the banking stuff is what's driving the actual one, the collapse of the actual market mm -hmm. back down to underground because it's just cheaper to be nefarious about it. And hopefully that'll help what you're doing because it, that's a regulatory thing that's just in the way of so many things. Oh my goodness. If anyone has any say on banks, banking, <laughs> you guys help us out. Everybody wants yeah. it. The banks want it too. They too want our money. Yeah. Because it's, We're good it's for lucrative. It's a growing market. It's all the things that you want. It's like funding an AI company. It's the same thing. Exactly. Again, That's exactly it. Yeah. yeah. These, are, and these are really tough problems. I applaud yeah. you for taking the risk on that. Thank you. Sometimes I definitely feel like a crazy person taking such risks. Sometimes when I explain to people what it all entails, the question that comes back is, are you sure you really want to do it? And why? God, why? Entrepreneurial spirits, I guess. I really do want to. Yeah. And someone's got to be the pioneer and the trailblazer. Why not be you? Right. That's I mean. right. I do feel like my voice can actually carry some substance. So maybe it is my time to contribute. Finally, I've learned enough and I'm not yet too old to be able to live out some of this work actually contribute, let's say, the next 20, 30 years of my life to it. So this is where I started. I started looking at who is going to be benefiting from the services and what can I offer that is substantially different from what is already available on the market. So one of the things that, again, I just decided to lean very heavily into my own personal experience. What is it that I would pay money for? What is it that would be incredibly valuable to me? And what I think is valuable is that I have a really safe and comfortable environment that is custom fit for me. I don't really want to do a lot of work in groups. I do see the value of group work. It is much more accessible and affordable. And there are certain things you can really only work through in a group setting. But if you are working on the transgenerational trauma and abandonment or some traumatic experiences that happened to you, sexual trauma, violence, some losses. Perhaps you do not want to share the floor with other people. Perhaps it is not really what you want to do to have to roll back your process to allow for that reciprocity with someone else. Perhaps what you want to do is just be with the process that you are yourself going through. I've also noticed that the more respectable research kind of approaches that MAPS has been popularizing are incredibly restrictive. So they're asking clients to sit or recline for the entire duration of their trip, which is easily six to eight hours. And you would have headphones and you would have a blindfold. Now, again, for me personally, that sounds awful. I do not trust anyone enough to just feel so relaxed with all of my sensory organs bound out and I'm just reclining while somebody is watching me. That seems really scary to me, to be quite honest even if I trust the therapist. 
So I feel like some of the aspects of that modality are not really trauma sensitive, not really culturally informed, perhaps. Like the music, for example, they're dictating that. You're not allowed as a client to choose your own playlist. I take offense to that. I think that is such a personal choice. And I would like to be able to choose my own music. And I would like to be able to change my mind. I would like to be flexible in whether I talk to the person or retreat. I don't want to sit down all the time. Sometimes I want to move and stretch and maybe, I don't know, wiggle or do some push-ups. I don't know. Do some physical things. So I want to offer my clients all of that. So what I've designed is an experience that is really one-on-one. I am going for intensive engagements. So rather than just one day of psilocybin experience, it's a three-day intensive. Or on the first day, we get to know each other. This is a great way to do organic intake. I used to run a residential facility that was co-ed for teenagers, 11 to 18, working on family reunification. So I have quite a bit of experience in learning a lot of information about people in a relatively short time. I can utilize some of those skills. And in the first day of us coming together, really get to know each other. Then we have a full day of the experience with psilocybin. And then on the third day, we have a full day of integration. The client doesn't have to share with anyone else. Everything is confidential. Everything is private. There's nobody else. There are no other employees that need to know or reschedule or do anything else. It is the experience that you would like to have. Very low key, very safe, and also doesn't have the potential of legal ramifications that you might experience in a more underground setting. Yeah. Wow. Makes a ton of sense to me. <laughs> I, I think your instincts about how to run your business and what to do are sound. Most entrepreneurs need to understand the unit economics and it's, if it's a living and a passion, those can coexist. I don't see any, there's no... It's not unethical or immoral, right? Whoever tells you that is just silly and doesn't understand the way the world works. It's the, that's what entrepreneurship is, right? We provide the world with new and creative things and we expect to be paid for them in a reasonable way. <laughs> you don't that even want to That's part of reciprocity. Yeah, I got to eat. <laughs> right. I have to eat. Yeah. I have to maintain myself. And also yeah. I found from working in the clinical realm, a lot of times, the client who is asked to participate financially will have a greater buy-in emotionally as well. They will take it more seriously. They will take it as something transformational because they've committed yeah. so much to it. Yeah. It has and, their and, value yeah. as well. Yeah. You got skin in the game, the way I always think of it. Jeanette, it was such a great conversation. I wish we could go longer, but we do have to end. Just fantastic what you're trying to do. So many entrepreneurial lessons. I know it doesn't seem that way to most, but you have basically taken us on the entire journey of what someone in an innovative new emerging market needs to think about. And good luck to you. I really appreciate your time and what you're trying to do. And boy, it's, it was transformational for me and I can see how it could be transformational for lots of people. So thank you. Thank you for what you do. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. I'm honored that you took the time to talk to me. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learned something that can make you a little bit better. 
If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better, as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits, values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur and, frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.